Hey. Hey. How's it going? Yeah. Doing really good. That's good. Have y'all? Has anyone started school back yet? Yes. How's that going? Not yet. Huh? Calculus too. There are no teachers. There are no teachers. Why? Oh. Well, I definitely feel that. I've been sick for the last week, so I'm like, I started getting better yesterday, but if I just start hacking up a lung, just let it happen. I'll be okay. Drew, it's okay. Um, we, don't, we are yet but, uh, but anyways, I'm glad y'all are here. Glad to be back on Wednesday nights. We're continuing our Emmaus Road series, and I know we pretty much hit this just about every week, right? But it's really important that y'all understand and have a good comprehension of what happened on the Emmaus Road. Because I'm telling you, if I understood what happened on the Emmaus Road, like, it didn't hit me in, until like, my early 20s. But if I had understood this, um, Emma, how old are you? 12. If I had understood these things when I was 12 years old, I probably would not have done a lot of the stupid things I did. Right? But if you understand that the scriptures are about God and they're all leading us to Jesus, they're all pointing us to Jesus, then you'll be miles ahead of, quite honestly, most people who, who claim to be Christians, but you'll certainly be miles ahead of where I was when I was your age. Um, but again, on the Emmaus Road, right, Jesus meets with these disciples, and what does he do? He opens the Bible, and he explains to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. And that's what we've been doing each week, taking the book of the Bible and explaining to you in that book of the Bible all the things concerning Jesus Christ, Right? And everything points to Jesus Christ, whether it's in types and shadows, right? You look at the Passover lamb, you look at uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac, right? We know that these things are, are typologically foreshadowing the work that Jesus would do, the person and work of Christ. And sometimes it's just pointing to Jesus in, in a narrative sense, right? We know that Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had Judah and his brothers, right? And so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. And then you get to Jesus, Right? So maybe it's pointing us in just a narrative sense, right? We're just going through the story till we get to Jesus. And some of it is in these types and shadows where they're pointing us to what Jesus would accomplish in his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at the book of Lamentations, as you can tell from the screens. Um, can anyone tell me anything about the book of Lamentations? Anything at all? Maybe who wrote it? Lamentation. Huh? It's sad. It's sad. Okay. Anything else? Anyone know what it's about? Anyone know where it is in the Bible? Lamentation. <laughs> it's after Jeremiah. Lamentations is in the book of Lamentations. That's correct. What'd you say? After Jeremiah. After Jeremiah, right? We did Jeremiah last. Huh? It's, it's on page 399. Uh, on, on a particular, what, particular page of that particular translation? All right. So, the book of Lamentations is sad. Um, it's actually a book of laments, and that's where it gets its name, Lamentations. Um, originally, in the Hebrew tradition, books were referred to by the first word in the book, right? Similar to the way that the Psalms were referred to by the first line in the psalm. So um, back in the day, rather than saying, all right, open your Bible to Psalm 23, what they would say is, open your Bible to the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Right? Right? The song we just sang, right? What's the name of that song? Blessed be, Blessed be your name. And what's the first line of the song? Blessed, Blessed be, be your name, right? 
So we see this principle at work in other places. But uh, traditionally, books were referred to by the first word in the book. Um, and the first word in this book, the book of Lamentations, is the word ekah, a Hebrew word. And that word is an exclamation that introduces a, a cry of woe. And later in Jewish history, rabbis began to refer to this book as the lament. And that title carried over into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and all the way through to our English translations today. So that's where it gets its title, the title of Lamentations. Now, this book was written during or sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And you can go to that next slide. We've got the, the timeline we've referenced several times. And if you notice on this timeline, they actually put the dating of this book in between the uh, fall of the northern kingdom and sometime before the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, but actually, um, I do believe that this outline is incorrect. I do believe that this book was written after the fall of Judah in 586 uh, B.C. And there's some reasons for that, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Um, there are some similarities between what you read in this book and other laments that you find in the Bible, namely in the Psalter. Um, one of the big differences, though, between this book and some of the laments you'll read in the book of Psalms is that a lot of the laments in the book of Psalms, their, their context is somewhat vague, right? You, you might be able to piece together what, uh, what he's talking about, what he's referencing, but, uh, but he's not very specific, whereas the laments in this book are very, very specific. And their context is that of a fallen city. And, the, and with the, the sort of um, uh, immerse, emotional turmoil they've experienced uh, at witnessing the destruction of their city. Uh, listen to these opening verses in, uh, in Lamentations. This is from Lamentations uh, chapter 1, verse 1. We read this, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who is great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. So we see right there in that opening verse that the, what the, the writer of this book is, is concerned with is with this city that was once full of people and now it's desolate, right? That was once a princess among the nations and now she is a slave. Now, the book of Lamentations itself doesn't tell us who wrote it, kind of the way that a lot of the books of the Bible do that. We don't know... Uh, there's nothing in there specifically that says who wrote the book. Um, in uh, the book of Jeremiah, you know, one of the things you read at the very beginning is that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Okay, so we know that the word contained in this book is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Uh, but the book of Lamentations isn't like that. We don't know from the book itself who actually wrote it. And I know sometimes that can be kind of frustrating that it doesn't tell us explicitly who the author is. But at the end of the day, does it really matter who the human author was? Why not? Huh? Either one. Go ahead. Because it's the same message. Because it's the same message? Okay, wow. Because it's, it's uh, the same heavenly author. Right. We know who the ultimate author was, right? And that was God. So even though we don't know the human author, we can rest content knowing that it's the word of God. And we know who the, the ultimate author was. Now, even though, it, even though Lamentations doesn't state who the human author is, um, I think we have a pretty good idea of who that, who that human author was. Uh, well, somebody look up uh, 2 Chronicles 35, 25 for me. Don't all be so quick to volunteer. Okay, go ahead. 2 Chronicles 35, 25. When you have it, go ahead and read that for us. Okay. 
Yep, 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 25. All right, so did y'all hear that? Right, we read that Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. Right? He was the king of, of Judah. And we read that the singing men and singing women uh, have spoken of Josiah in their laments, and all of these things are written in the lament. So we learned from elsewhere in Scripture that Jeremiah authored the lament. Now, if we're going to be very critical, right, we would have to, we would have to be honest and say, okay, it says that Jeremiah uttered lament, but it doesn't specifically say that he uttered this lament, right? So... Given that fact, it is quite possible that somebody else wrote the book. Um, it's possible that Jeremiah wrote it um, and somebody else later put it, you know, collected them and put it in this book, you know, kind of with the Psalms. You know, we got Psalms written by several different authors. And somewhere down the line, somebody grabbed all these Psalms and put them together in one volume. So it's possible that that was the case. Maybe it's the case that somebody else actually wrote these laments, but Jeremiah was the one who put them together, right? So there's a lot of possibilities. Um, but... Uh, we do have a cross-reference from the scriptures, right? The scriptures tell us that Jeremiah uttered these laments, and they're written for us in this collection called The Laments. Um, but not only that, but there's a lot of similarities between uh, the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. We see some similarities in writing style, in language used, um, and so it is largely agreed upon. And um, I would say that it's most, the most likely that Jeremiah is the author of The Laments. But not only that, um, but the Septuagint, right, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So in a similar way, this is the ESV, right? That's an English translation of the Greek and Hebrew Bible. Uh, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, they had a note about Jeremiah being the author of Lamentations. So as far back as 250 BC, it has been believed that Jeremiah was the author of the book of Lamentations. And so just a couple quick things about the structure of Lamentations before we jump into uh, the content of this book. The book of Lamentations is structured into five uh, poems, uh, which are marked by the five chapters, right? There's five chapters because there's five different poems in the book. Chapter one, or po the first poem, focuses on the humiliation of Jerusalem. Chapter two focuses on the anger, the wrath, and justice of God against Judah for her sins. Chapter 3 expresses the grief of the community over the sin and the fall of their city. Chapter 4 recounts the torment of Judah as she suffers under the weight of God's judgment. And lastly, in chapter 5, chapter 5 looks to Yahweh to restore Judah amidst their humiliation and judgment. So now that we have a, a pretty um, rough understanding of the setting and the structure of the book, let's start to work our way through this book and highlight some recurring themes. And then once we're done, we'll kind of come back and make some some gospel connections. So as you read through this book, one of the first things you'll notice is that there is an incredible amount of emotional honesty on the part of the author. Um, and this is a feature that characterizes uh, lamentations as well as laments found elsewhere, namely in the Psalter. There's no sugarcoating the situation. There's no denying the true state of affairs. Uh, rather, what you see is you see the author clearly express not only the situation, but his feelings and his emotional state towards the situation, even to the point of honestly questioning how God could allow this to happen. 
Um, look at Lamentations chapter 1, verses uh, 9 through 12. There we read this. Her uncleanliness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall was terrible. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hand over her, all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you? All you who pass by, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. And again, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, we read this, my eyes are spent with weeping, and my stomach churns, my bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Now, the author clearly understands that it was their sin that brought about this state of affairs. However, this doesn't mean that he glosses over the difficulty of processing and even accepting this reality. Rather, we see that the author is vulnerable and honest about his emotional disposition. And he gives us a good example of how to honestly contend with our emotions rather than simply deny them or, or suppress them. All the while recognizing that it was God's frowning providence that brought these things about. Now, often people, and I'm sure y'all can relate to this, often people, and especially Christians, uh, think that negative emotions are inherently wrong or sinful. Um, now, sometimes that can absolutely be the case. And certainly, if we allow ourselves to be ruled by our emotions, that can absolutely be sinful. But does that mean that necessarily feeling something negative, uh, that we should deny that? Or we should try to suppress that emotion? What do you think? Yes, no, maybe. Here's the thing. We need to rightly identify our emotions. And we need to be honest about them so that we can properly process them. And then, right, once we've done those things, then we need to subject our emotions to the truths of Scripture. Um, often, emotions uh, are, are, are often uh, that process, right, of, of identifying our emotions, of, of working through them and subjecting them to Scripture, often that can take some time, right? That can take hours, it can take months, it can, it can even take some years at times. Uh, but, but we need to recognize that we can never submit our negative emotions to Scripture if we just flat out deny the fact that we have negative emotions, Right? In the same way that we cannot, we cannot put to death our sin if we deny the fact that we have sin, right? If we, if we deny the fact that, well, yes, I am discontent, and that's why I covet. Yes, I do have lust in my heart. Yes, I do have a problem lying and stealing. Yes, you know what? I do take the Lord's name in vain. And you know what? I do, I do make idols, 
Maybe not craft them with my hands, but I certainly make idols in my mind and in my heart. Right? If we deny those things, how can we actually repent of those things and turn towards Christ? How can you repent of a sin you're not identifying? How can you repent of a sin you're not being honest about? Well, in, this, in that exact same way, if we don't rightly identify what our emotional state is, how can we rightly submit our emotional state to the truths of Scripture? How can we put to death our sinful emotions unless we are honest about them? And one of the things we see in the book of Lamentations is that the author, <clears throat> that while he rightly understands the reality of his situation, he takes the time to honestly contend with his emotional state, right? And we see that very clearly throughout the book. Now, while there is, while we do see an incredible amount of emotional honesty, there's no mistaking the fact that it was God who brought about this destruction. And so not only do we see emotional honesty, but we also see a recognition and acceptance of God's judgment and of his discipline. Somebody look up uh, Lamentations chapter 1 verse 5 for me, okay? Somebody uh, look up uh, chapter 4 verse 11, and somebody, will you look up chapter 4 verse 16? <clears throat> Whatever you've got that, you can go ahead and read it for us. All right, so we, did y'all hear that? Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper. Why? Because the Lord has afflicted her, right? The author recognizes that this just didn't happen, right? It's not just like, oh, well, you know, bad things happen. No, the Lord is the one who brought this about. And if you look at chapter 2, pretty much all of chapter 2 is, is just a sort of treatise on the fact that this was, this was God's doing, right? Uh, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven. He has not remembered. The Lord has swallowed. In his wrath, he has broken down. He has brought down. He has, he has, the Lord has, he has, he has. You see that over 30 times in chapter 2, clearly recognizing that this did not just happen, right? Okay, yes, there was, there was another nation that came, right? There was another case, nation that came and conquered us, but it was the Lord who brought this about. And same thing in chapter 3. Uh, in the first 18 verses of chapter 3, we read, I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He, being God, has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Over and over and over again, there's a recognition that this is something God brought about. And it isn't that God just brought it about just, well, because God like, gets, you know, kicks and giggles out of make, making bad things happen. But no, God is bringing this about specifically because he is judging us for our sin. We see it over and over and over again. Who had uh, chapter 4, verse 11? Read that for us. The Lord gave full vengeance to his wrath, poured out his hot anger, and he kindled the fire in Zion and consumed the foundations. Again, it was the Lord, right? And if you look at your Bible, right, you'll see that Lord in all caps. Right? This isn't just some, like, you know, uh, cheap sort of, well, you know, it's, it's a God thing. Right? No, specifically, that Lord in all caps is the translation of his covenant name, the Tetragrammaton, those four letters, Y-H-W-H, where we get the word Yahweh. It's saying that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, gave full vent to his anger. And he poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed his foundation. And then lastly, who had uh, verse 16, chapter 4? Not 
again, right? When, when the Babylonians came and took them away into captivity, the people of Israel were scattered, right? They were no longer gathered together in one place as a nation. And did, does the author say that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar did this or the Babylonians did this? No, he says, the Lord himself has scattered them and he will regard them no more. He has not shown favor to the priests nor favor to the elders. Now, going back to chapter 2, real quick, verse 17. In verse 17, we read this. The Lord, right? Again, that tetragrammaton, those four letters in all caps. That's, so we can translate that as Yahweh. Yahweh has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. One of the interesting things about all of this is that it's not as though Israel had no warning, right? It's not as though this judgment came as a surprise to them. Rather, they had countless prophets proclaim to them not only their sin, but the judgment that was sure to come should they remain in their sin. And if we're being honest, we see that same kind of thing today, don't we? We see people running headlong into sin, and despite godly brothers and sisters coming to them, rebuking them, telling them, hey, if you keep going this direction, right, there's going to be consequences. God's going to judge your sin. God's going to discipline you. There's going to be consequences for your actions. What do they do? Eh. Me and God, we got this thing worked out. Nah, God don't really work that way anymore. Or whatever excuse you want to insert, right? And then what happens, right? Calamity strikes. Bad things happen. People experience the consequences of their actions, and what's their response? How could this happen? How could God do this to me? Right? We almost see the same thing happen in Lamentations. Right? He asked the question, why could God do this? Could God become like an enemy? Could God do these bad things to me? He asked the question, but he recognizes, well, he absolutely can. Because it was my sin that brought about this destruction. And get this, not only did they have the prophets, but from the beginning of God's dealing with the people of Israel, God explained to them the consequences for disobedience. Somebody uh, opened their Bible to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26. Um, I want you to read uh, verses 14 to the first part of uh, verse 16. And let me get somebody else to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Uh, Chapter 28, verse 15. Whenever you find that, Josie, you can go ahead and read that for us. Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse 14. Huh? Uh, Josiah got it. I'll let you get the next one. 14. You'll read 14, 15, and the first part of verse 16. All right, that, that, that's perfect. You can stop right there, okay? Uh, and then go ahead and read uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15 for us. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. All right, so what's happening in these sections of Scripture, right? In the book of Leviticus, we have Moses explaining to the people the terms of God's covenant with them. 
And we see in that chapter that there are blessings for obedience, right? Chapter 26 in the first, um, first 13 verses. And then there are curses or punishments for disobedience, verses 14 through 46. And then in Deuteronomy, right, as the people are getting ready to enter into the promised land, you have a recapitulation of these covenant terms. Again, in the first 14 verses, you have the blessings for obedience. And then in verses 15 through 68, you have the punishments or the cursing for disobedience. Now, just as a, a, a brief aside, I do find it quite interesting, right, that the section covering blessing, right, is significantly smaller than the section covering punishments for disobedience, right? In both, of these, in both of these books, right, both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the section covering curses for disobedience is vastly bigger than the section covering blessings for obedience. And what's really funny to me is that a lot of the word of faith folks, the name and claim it, prosperity gospel types, they want to lay hold of the material blessings promised in this covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. All the while, they want to conveniently neglect the covenantal cursings that also accompany those blessings, right? I'm sure we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but I'll just leave it right there. But at any rate, we see that from the beginning of God's dealing with Israel, there were consequences for disobedience to God and his covenant. Specifically, let me read for you um, in Leviticus uh, chapter 26, verse 17. I will set my face against you, and you will be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. Again, in verse 25, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for my covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. And then again, verses 30 through 33. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities to waste. And I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land will be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Now, we don't have time, right, to cover all of these blessings and cursings contained in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but I do think it would be worth your time to go back and read Leviticus chapter 26, the whole chapter, and Deuteronomy chapter 28, the whole chapter. Um, but we see, even in the, like a brief survey, right, just of Leviticus, right, we see that what happened to the northern and the southern kingdoms was exactly what God said would happen should they disobey his covenant. God told Israel that he would set his face against them and that he will walk contrary to them. In essence, what he is saying is that I will no longer be for you, but I will be against you. And we read in Lamentations 2.5, we see that the Lord has become an enemy. Right? The Lord promised that a nation is going to come. Your enemies are going to rule over you. And what happened? A nation came. Right? We read in, in Deuteronomy. Let me, let me read this for you real quick because it's, it gets a little more specific in, um, in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known 
And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. Right? He told them, if you disobey my covenant, I'm going to lead you away to another nation that's not your own. Right? Again, in verse 45, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and to overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. Right? So what happened to the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah was exactly what God said would happen. Specifically, their enemies would rule over them. They would become slaves. They would be carried off to a nation that was not their own. And when the, um, when the, when the prophets came, it's not as though they were just giving some sort of off-the-wall like prophecy prediction of the future. Uh, rather, the content of their prophecy was specifically covenantal. It was specifically filled with the blessings and curses contained in Deuteronomy. The content of their prophecy was, you are a nation in covenant with God. You have broken that covenant. And should you remain in your sin, here is the future that is sure to come as judgment for your sin. And again, this is specifically what God said would happen in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Just a couple of of, of quick things, right? Leviticus chapter 26, verse 17, I will set my face against you and, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. And in chapter 2, verse 3, we read this. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn them from his right hand. In the face of the enemy, he has burned like the flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 25, And I shall bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. And in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 16, we read this, All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we have longed for. Now we have it. Now we see it. So God says in his covenant with Israel, he says, if you disobey my covenant, I will deliver you into the hand of your enemies. And what happened when Israel disobeyed? Well, we read in Lamentations that the enemy swallowed her. They were delivered into the hands of their enemy. Again, verse 26 of, of uh, Leviticus, when I break your supply of bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And in verse 19 of chapter 2 in Lamentations, we read, arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord, lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. So God says, If you disobey my covenant, you will eat and you will not be satisfied. And they disobeyed his covenant. And what do we read? The children faint because of hunger at the head of every street. Again, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 29. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Why, that's pretty gruesome. And we read in verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb? the children of their tender care, should the priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord. So God says, if you disobey my covenant, you're going to eat your own children. You're going to destroy your own children. And they disobeyed God's covenant. What are we reading in Lamentations? Women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care. And last one, real quick. 26 verses 30 and 31 And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altar and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. 
My soul will abhor you, and I will lay your cities to waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And we read in Lamentations chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, the Lord has become an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its places. He has laid to ruin its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation, he spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord on the day of a festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out a measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophet finds no vision of the Lord. So the Lord says, I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars. I will lay your cities to waste and make your sanctuaries desolate. Israel disobeyed God's covenant, and what did we see happen? He swallowed up all its palaces. He laid to ruin its stronghold. He laid waste its booth. He scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He sunk her gates to the ground. He ruined and broken her bars. What happened to Israel and what happened to Judah was exactly what God said would happen. God must judge sin, and God will judge sin. We see that on display here in the book of Lamentations. And so the author of Lamentations was not simply giving lip service to God's sovereignty, right? It wasn't just like pithily saying, well, you know, it's a God thing. He's in control. God's in control. These bad things are happening. God's in control. Rather, he searched the scriptures, right, in order to understand the times, And he accurately recognized the sin of the people and the need for God to righteously judge their sin. Then, not only do we see an acceptance and recognition of God's judgment, but we also see a righteous and godly grief over sin. We need to experience godly grief over sin and the effect it has on our life as well as the lives of those around us. And this is not to be confused with being humiliated because you got, you got found out, right? I often like to make a distinction between being humiliated and being humble, right? I know that technically the words kind of mean the same thing, but there's a nuanced difference that I do think we get and I do think we understand. All of us know what it feels like to be humiliated, right? All of us know what it feels like to be embarrassed. And specifically, all of us know what it feels like to be humiliated and embarrassed because we got found out, because our sin got found out. But that's vastly different from being humbled by the recognition of our offense against God. We all feel sorry after getting caught, right? We all feel bad when we've been found out. But do we truly grieve over what our sin has done? Do we truly grieve over how it has offended God? How it has hurt those around us? That's what godly grief truly is. It's not just being sorry because I got caught. David, after being called out by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, David gets called out by the prophet Nathan over his sin with Bathsheba. And in Psalm 51 uh, verse 4, he writes this, against you, speaking to God, against you and you only 
have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Now, David sinned against a lot of people when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and subsequently had her husband killed to cover it up, right? He sinned against Uriah, right, which was Bathsheba's husband. He sinned against him in a lot of different ways, right? He sinned against Bathsheba herself. He sinned against his own wife and children. As the king and the representative of the nation, he sinned against the people of Israel. And the list goes on and on and on. But David realized that his sin, although it has effects on the people around him, his sin is primarily an affront to a holy God. David models for us how we ought to be broken over our sin and how we should turn to God in repentance and faith. And in this book, the book of Lamentations, we see another example of how to rightly grieve over our sin. Um, Somebody look up uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Lydia, did you want to get that one? Somebody look up uh, chapter 3, verses 40 through 42. And then let me get one more person to look up chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Whenever you get there, Lydia, you can go ahead and read that for us. Bereaves. Bereaves. In the house, it is like death. Right? So he opens, look, O Lord, and see, for I am in distress. My stomach turns. Right? I'm sick to my stomach. My heart is wrung within me, and my, I feel this weight in my heart. Why? Because I have been very rebellious. Right? He recognizes his sin, and it causes him almost to the... He recognizes it so much so that it causes him physical sickness. Right? Uh, you had uh, chapter 3. Verses 40 through 42. Let us turn to him and bring him on letters and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Right? The author says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Why? Well, because our ways are wicked, and we have walked away from God. We must return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands in humility to God in heaven. Why? Because we have transgressed and rebelled. And he says, and you have not forgiven. They were not forgiven. They experienced the judgment for their sin. They experienced the punishments, the cursings for breaking God's covenant. And they recognized that this was brought about, not you know, not because Bab- Babylon was so terrible, even though they were. But this was brought about by God because of our own sin. And then who had 15, uh, chapter 5, verse 15 through 17? Again, the joy of our hearts have ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Why? Woe to us, for we have sinned. And he says, for this our heart has become sick. For these things my eyes have grown dim. For what things? Because we have sinned. We see over and over and over again a recognition of their sin. And the righteous and God, and we see a righteous and godly grief over the destruction caused by their sin. Lastly, one of the last things we see in this book is we see a continued hope in Yahweh for restoration. While the author recognizes the justice 
and holiness of God that demanded that he bring his wrath to bear against their sin. The author also remembers the loving kindness and compassion of God. He remembers the promises that God made, promises for their good, like we saw in Jeremiah verse 29, right? God still had good plans for them, right? Plans to bless them and not to harm them, plans to give them hope in the future. And despite what seemed like the utter depth of despair and the complete ruin of Israel, the author of Lamentations places his hope in the character and promises of God. Somebody look up uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 22 for me. Uh, Somebody look up uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 22 through 33. And then somebody look up uh, chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. Whenever you get there, Emma, you can go ahead and read that for us. Yeah, verse 22. Evil doing, yeah. Right? The author recognizes, you have dealt with me, right, in judgment because of my transgressions. And what's his hope? My hope is that you will deal with them according to their evil doing. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with it. Right? Why does he place his hope in? Right? He, he's a, the author recognizes the judgment of God, is experiencing the judgment of God, and they should go, well, you know what? I don't know why I worship a God like that. Is that what he says? No. He says, because I know, God, that you are holy and that you must judge sin, Lord, I pray that you would deal with the sin of this nation that has carried us off into exile. Placing his hope in God's character, his holy character. You had uh, chapter, chapter 3, verses 22 through 33. I know that's a big section. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bears the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may he yet be hope. And let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him. And let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But through it, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grief the children of men. Again, in this section, we see just almost like this beautiful song about the character of God. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. And then when we get to verse 31, he says, For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion. And why will he have compassion? Will he have compassion because I'm a nice guy? Because really, you know, I've made some mistakes. But in my heart, I'm a good person. Right? Is that why God will have compassion? No. Why does it say that he will have compassion? He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The hope of restoration, the hope of the author of Lamentations is in the character of God. It's in the fact that though he does cause grief, out of the abundance of his steadfast love, he will have compassion. And then who had uh, chapter 5, verse 19 through 22? But you will afford rain forever. Your throne endures for all generations. 
Again, we see a recognition, but you, O Lord, you reign forever and your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us? Why do you forsake us for so many days, right? We see again that emotional honesty. And he says, restore us to yourself, right? Again, he doesn't have this sort of attitude, well, you know, if if God would judge sin, well, I I don't think I could worship that kind of God. No, what does he say? No, you rightly judged our sin, now please restore us to yourself. Don't forget us. He says, renew us to the days of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry. But the truth is, is that God had not utterly rejected them, right? God had good plans for them, plans to prosper them and not to harm them, plans for hope in the future. And so though he was exceedingly angry, we, the author places his hope in the fact that God is a holy God, he is a just God, he is a, stead, he is a God of steadfast love and compassion, and he will fulfill the promises that he made to us. So again, we've seen all these things, right? We've seen the emotional honesty of the author. We've seen a recognition and acceptance of God's judgment and discipline. We see a righteous and godly grief over sin, and we see the hope of restoration. Now, how do we see Christ in the book of Lamentations, right? Well, a couple of things that I'd like to point out to you. First of all, in the same way that the author experienced tremendous grief over the sin of his people and over the state of his nation, we see Jesus experience that same grief. In fact, uh, the prophet Isaiah tells us that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that he would be a man of sorrow and he would be well acquainted with grief. And we see that Jeremiah, right, the author of Lamentations, uh, also known as the weeping prophet, we see that his ministry and the ministry of Jesus are very similar, right? Both proclaim the word of God to a crooked and perverse generation, Both were broadly rejected by the people they came to minister to. But you need to remember, Jeremiah never saw a single convert during the entirety of his ministry. Yet Jesus, unlike Jeremiah, though he experienced what seemed like a temporary setback, right? He was pretty much rejected by all those he came to minister to, to the point where they killed him, right? But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And he actually accomplished the salvation of his people in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Not only that, but the author of Hebrews tells us that our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is not like other high priests who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So when we struggle to understand why things have happened, when we in our weakness question God, why could you let this happen? We question his character, we question his promises, we know that our great high priest understands and that he sympathizes with our weakness. We see that God gives us an example in the book of Lamentation. He gives us an example of emotional honesty, of that tension between grief and sorrow and the understanding of the need for God to judge sin. So we don't have to fear being vulnerable. We don't have to fear being honest about our sin, being honest about our negative, our sinful emotions. Why? Because God gave us a high priest who understands, right? In the same way that we can identify, right? We can identify with some of the things laid out in this book of Lamentations. We can identify with Christ because he understands our weaknesses. He understands our frame. Not only that, but in the same way that the author of Lamentations rightly identifies, right? Rightly identifies the need for God's judgment. And he accepts and submits himself to that judgment. We see Christ do the exact same thing. Right? In Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 42, 
There we read this. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Right? In the same way the author did, Christ recognized the need for God to judge sin, and he submitted himself to that judgment. Only the difference is, is that the author of Lamentations recognized that it was his own sin that brought about God's judgment. But there was no sin in Jesus. He did not submit to God's judgment for his own sin. No, he submitted himself to God's judgment for our sin. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserved for our sin. And lastly, we know that the ultimate hope of restoration comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Israel eventually was restored to the land. Uh, but they were not restored to right fellowship with God. If y'all remember, um, I think it was, I guess it was several months ago now, when Joe talked about the book of Ezra, right? In the book of Ezra, when they saw the temple, the people cheered. But those who remembered the temple of old, what did they do? They wept. Why? Because there was no glory in the temple, right? They had no ark. Now, the ark was just a representation of God's presence with his people. But the fact is, is that God's presence was not in the temple. They, though they had been restored to the land, they were not restored to right fellowship with God. And it wasn't until Christ came, right, the perfect Israelite who could perfectly uphold the demands of that covenant, until Christ came, and fulfilled that covenant. And not only perfectly obeyed that covenant, but suffered the penalty for disobedience to that covenant. Only then was the way made for us to be rightly reconciled to God. And so, you know, if we look at, you know, I'm sure we can make some comparisons between our nation now and the nation of Israel, right? We're, we're a people who, whether you like it or not, right, if you want to honestly contend with our history, the fact is, is that this nation was built on principles found in God's Word. But you couldn't tell that today, right? Just look anywhere. I mean, you could just close your eyes and point, and you'll find some sort of sin or debauchery taking place. We have completely forgotten the God whose law, whose Word made this nation great. And we are headed, like, headlong at breakneck speed towards sin and destruction. And the fact is, is that maybe, maybe, maybe one day, we like Israel can be restored to the land, right? Maybe one day inflation won't be so high. Maybe one day carton of eggs won't cost $25 or whatever it costs these days. $6. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll get, we'll get better politicians, right? We'll get better congresspeople, better presidents. But the fact of the matter is, right, if we put our hope in those things, or the restoration of those material things, and we miss the fact that what we need is restoration to fellowship with God, then we miss the point. We will be like Israel. We'll be restored to the land, but there will be no glory in this temple. And so if we want to see true restoration, if we want to live with true hope, and that hope is only in the person and work of Jesus Christ, because it's only because of what he did that we can be restored to right fellowship with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to study your word. Lord, we thank you for the book of Lamentations. 
And though it can be a, a difficult book to work through, Lord, we thank you that you have provided for us an example of what truly contending with our emotions looks like. You've given us a, an example of recognizing and accepting your discipline and your judgment, of recognizing our own sin and the need for that sin to be dealt with. Lord, we thank you that you've given us an example of how to rightly grieve over our sin, specifically how our sin has offended you as a holy God. And Lord, we thank you that ultimately you restore your people to yourself. Lord, we thank you for the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that because of what he did, Lord, we, the people sitting here in this room, the people of Clay, Alabama, Lord, we can experience right fellowship with God because of what you've done in your son. And so if there's anything we can take away from this book, Lord, or any book of the Bible, I pray that it would be a recognition of the person and work of Christ. I pray for these students. Lord, I pray that if they're living in sin, that you would convict them of their sin. Lord, that you do so before judgment comes, before they experience the consequences of their sin. But Lord, should not, should they not, Lord, should they see your, your frowning providence, should they experience your discipline? God, I pray that you would do those things in order to bring them back to yourself. God, I pray that they would see their ultimate need is not for more followers on social media. It's not for more money in their bank accounts. It's not for more cars or more girls or whatever it is, Lord. But ultimately what they need is to be restored to right fellowship with you. And Lord, we thank you that you've made a way for that to take place. We thank you and praise you for all these things. And it's in your son's name we pray.